Good morning. We're about five weeks into a tour of um, the idea of authentic faith, and especially just looking at how the early church actually worked and trying to model ourselves as individuals and as a church against that. I believe that's always the best way to do that. Um, if you want to hear uh, the other messages, they're on morrisonhill.com, pretty easy to find. And the, uh, each one of these messages builds on the other in important ways. So if you've missed one, I do encourage you to get there. But just to catch you up this morning, I want to tell you about one of my favorite movies, The Princess Bride. I think that'll help you get this idea of authentic faith. It's pretty simple. But if you remember all the way through the beginning of the movie, uh, there's this guy named uh, Vicini, and he keeps saying, inconceivable. You remember that part? And he just keeps saying that. And then finally, the, the guy named Inigo says, this word you keep on using, I do not think it means what you think it means. And sometimes we do that. that I think that's what we do is we, we have things that we think is what God's will is, what we think he said in the Bible, what we think somebody told us at some point, but it's not actually what's there. We have to keep coming back to the actual word of God. We have to keep coming back to what was actually written, what the apostles actually spoke, what the uh, psalm writers actually wrote. We've got to get back to that. We've got to measure that. The other, so that's one part of authentic faith is making sure that your faith is authentic that you're saying what you think you're saying, that you're doing what you, what's actually the right thing, not what you think is the right thing. The other kind of authentic faith is also in there, and that, that's represented by the undying, literally undying love, undying devotion that Wesley had for Buttercup and for the whole idea of true love. As you walk through that, um, the whole story, you see this over and over. And this is exactly the kind of devotion that the early church had to the gospel, to what the apostles had taught them, to the fellowship that they had together, to communion and celebrating that together. And also just, I would never watch The Princess Bride in the first place when I just first heard about it. Or just the idea of a fairy tale comedy doesn't really grab me in general. But it became one of my favorite movies. The only reason I went to see it is because somebody that I trusted, that I thought had good taste in movies, said, I'm serious, John. You've got to see this movie. And that's how it works a lot. And that's part of what I want to talk to you about this morning. Ratings and reviews mean a whole lot to us. This up here is a screenshot from Amazon.com. It's a review of the book, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And apparently Nancy, I hope it's not any Nancy I know, Nancy's one of the 10% who rated it three stars or less. I'm personally in the camp of the 76% who, who gave it five stars. And I kind of agree with the 14% who gave it four. This is a fantastic book. Now, again, you may not care about that, but just in case you were considering it, you might be considering reading it a little more just because you heard a recommendation from a real person unless you really don't want a recognition from me. That's a, pos that's a possibility too, but here's the thing. Listen, we put a lot of stock in personal testimonies. Even the personal testimonies of total strangers. That's just how we are. That's how people are. Which means that it's really important that we share our stories. That we have stories to share and that when we have them, that we share them. If you are a note-taking kind of a person, I just gave you the first line. There's not even anything to fill out there, but there you go. We put a lot of faith in personal testimonies. It's right there. Jesus asked for more than ratings, more than stars, 
more than even just stories. Hey, you got to come hear Jesus. He asks that we build our lives on his words. That literally, step by step, choice by choice, we actually make our entire life become part of what his vision was. But everything that we know that Jesus said, every single word that he spoke, every single thing that he did, the only reason we know that, the only reason we still have that around is because of the personal testimony of the people who spent time with him. That's the only reason that we even know this. And that's something that I think sometimes we forget. But it's important that we do knew this. These people actually personally knew Jesus. They heard him speak. They saw him. They saw him heal people or they experienced his healing. And these are the people that were sharing their stories. John the apostle writes this in 1 John verse 1 and following. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes, touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him, and now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share in our joy. When the apostles taught, they were telling first-person personal accounts. They were sharing what they knew, what they had experienced. It was something they had lived and were still living. And this is such an important thing. It also, especially, this is one of the ways that we know that we can trust the New Testament itself at all. This is one of the ways that we can know that our faith in Christ is authentic. And simply this, these people actually went to the grave. They were, some, most of them were tortured to death because they believed in it so much. But their faith was totally focused on Jesus Christ. This wasn't an idea that they had come up with. It wasn't something that they were trying to promote, that somehow they thought they could make money. There, there absolutely wasn't any of the things that, that you would assume would happen if any part of this was fake. The apostles' teaching was completely focused on Jesus Christ because they had experienced Jesus Christ. He had absolutely destroyed anything else they'd ever cared about and absolutely brought to life a whole new way of looking at everything. And it was worth anything to them to live this out, to share this truth. They started life just as regular people and then they became disciples. Disciple is just a real cool word that means a follower, someone who follows, someone who's learning. And just a few weeks ago, we focused for the whole day about that we're all disciples. We're, we're all following Jesus, and we're all helping others follow him. That's so important. But then these same people became apostles. And there is another sense of apostle. That's a whole other thing. But at the core of apostle, the word apostle, that just means someone who is sent out with a message. And in that sense, we are all also apostles. We are all sent out. This is what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus and to share Jesus, to join his kingdom and to build his kingdom, to recognize him as the source of life and also build your life step by step 
on the things that he said. Would you once more read the Great Commission with us? At the center of all the apostles' teaching, this was their mission. This is what they were most focused on. But this is what we must also be most focused on. Let's say it together. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It was really clear that Jesus was with them. Acts 2 tells the story of how the church actually began. The first 36 verses talk about the first gathering that they had after Jesus had died and risen and given this great commission. The first time they all got together and actually shared that message is in Acts 2, 1 through 36. Verse 37 to 41, we talked about this just the other day. This was the first altar call and the first response. 3,000 were baptized and joined God's kingdom that day. And then the next couple verses, 42 to 47, which we're about to read in a second, it says exactly what happened next. And there's always, please don't ever miss this as you read through the scriptures, as you listen to any kind of a message ever. There's always a what happens next or it's not actually Jesus. There is nowhere in the Bible that offers us a just get saved kind of a message where in the sense that we think of it where we say okay now my ticket is punched that just doesn't happen every single time someone is rescued you assume something else is going to happen next every single don't you i mean if you save somebody from drowning you don't expect them to just lay there on the side of the lake and go i didn't die you expect them to live their life right you expect them to go, man, I got another chance. This is awesome. And that's exactly how Jesus always presents the gospel. Everything he says is not just, you just got to believe this. You just got to accept this is true and then just keep on coasting. He's saying, you've got to get this and then you've got to act on it and then act on the next thing I tell you. Acts 2.42 and following describes how the early believers did this. All the believers... Actually, would you read this with me? Would you read this part? This is huge, and I want to make sure that you guys all hear your own voices. Maybe it'll stick better. Let's do this. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. And most of the time when we read a passage like that and we see somebody living out a very specific way of expressing their faith in Christ, we have a little bit of pushback that happens in our heart. Maybe you just felt that. If you did, you're normal, but you're still wrong. 
okay? <laughs> just being straight up, I feel it too. But here, here's, what, here's what happens when you go, wait a second, wait a second. That's just, that's kind of extreme, I think. That's, that's, usually, what, that's usually what we feel. And, and to some degree, let me reassure you just a second, to some degree that's true. When, when, when Jesus said to go and to reach all nations, what he meant by nations was not every legal country, every government in the world. He meant every distinct group of people. And every distinct group of people has a unique culture, a, new, a unique language. There's some geographical and cultural issues that probably are going to make each distinct group of people, as the gospel spreads, as his kingdom builds, each little group is going to express their faith a little differently. And that's okay. We don't have to do it exactly like the earliest church did it in first century Rome. There is some flexibility. But here's what we can't miss. This is the prototype. This is what we're measured against. This is the original idea that every culture, the church in any culture, has to measure against. Maybe it won't look exactly like this, but we can't just make it up from scratch. This is what it looked like in the first place. This is what God set up. This is what he said, do this. And they said, okay, I think that sounds like this. This is how the first church did it. This is the model that we're following. This is the prototype. And so it's very important that at the very least, we need to be devoted to the things that they were devoted to. At the very least, we need to be aiming at the same targets they were aiming at. At the very least, we need to be passionate about the things they were passionate about. And today, in the next four weeks, we're going to look at what those things are. Because not only can we see their story in these few verses, and then as Acts keeps going on, but also Luke, the awesome historian that he was, he actually pointed out in verse 42, we just read it together, but he pointed out the four things they were most devoted to. So today we're starting with the first one. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to really focus on exactly what those are, because as individuals and as a church, we've got to measure ourselves against the prototype. One more time, Acts 2, 42. Everybody read with me again, please. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And don't forget, bottom line, the most, the most important thing that you need to know about the apostles' teaching is this. It's focused on Jesus. The second most important thing you need to remember about the apostles' teaching is its firsthand personal accounts. These are people sharing what they had experienced. They're sharing a story that had happened and was still happening. They're sharing what they're living. They're sharing who they are and what they're doing. And it's not just these 12 guys. The apostles' teaching, if you can just imagine for a moment what it must have been like to be in just about any gathering throughout that whole land whenever any one of them was teaching. Because all the people that were in these stories were still alive. Jairus' daughter was probably in the, con in the congregation somewhere. And they're going, and Jesus reached down to her and said, little girl, I say to you, get up. And people are going, uh-uh, there's no way he, he brought a kid back to life. She's like, yeah, he did. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Like this, all these people in these stories that we love, Lazarus was still around. Those five friends, the one that was paralyzed and the four that like took his mat and dug a hole in a roof and lowered him down. Remember those guys? They're still around. The guy whose roof got destroyed is still around. He's going, yeah, 
yeah, that was me. That was my roof. There's eyewitness testimony everywhere in this generation. Everybody knew that no matter whether they obeyed Jesus' teachings or not, whether they accepted that he was the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and the promised Messiah, whether they chose to accept his challenge and build their lives on his teachings or not, they all knew that these stories were true. The apostles' teaching was real. It was firsthand eyewitness accounts. You've got to understand this because some of the things in the Bible are just kind of strange. And anybody who was faking it would never put it in. I'm just going to show you one, one example. This is from Matthew chapter 27. I know you've heard, if you've heard anything at all at church, you've heard about the crucifixion. Guaranteed. You probably heard part of this. I'm going to read it. And, and some of this is going to sound so familiar. But honestly, sometimes, a lot of times actually, when someone's sharing this story, we kind of skip this one little part I'm going to highlight today because it's just so crazy. And we don't want to distract anybody with the craziness. We want you to hear the point. But just here's what I want you to notice today. They would not have put the point I'm about to highlight in unless all those people that were, they're talking about we're still around and listening. This was inserted as an extra proof that what they were saying is true. Matthew 27, verse 50 to 53. Then Jesus shouted again, and he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split apart. And tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. Would you put that in if you were making up a fake religion? Would you throw that in if you were trying to convince people that what you were saying was true? The only reason they mention that is because some of those people were still around when they're telling the story. And people are going, that was the, Grandpa did come back the day that Jesus came back. Wow, this is crazy. This story is true. Just for a moment, if you'll indulge me, I just want to make sure that everybody in this room, most of you probably do, some of you may not, I don't know, but I want to make sure that you actually understand how the New Testament works. Because most of the New Testament is the apostles' teaching. For us now, we, we, we can't hear them talking in their own voices and in their own language, but we have access to almost everything that they said. And I, wanna, I want you to see how closely, how closely we can get to actually hearing their voices. Listen to this. The first four books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call those the Gospels. That's where we get the stories about Jesus and all of his core teachings. Matthew and John were part of the 12. Mark was John Mark, who worked with Paul and Barnabas and also with Peter. And he, most people believe that he was actually writing down Peter's memoirs when he wrote this down. Because the Bible also tells us Peter couldn't read or write. He was totally uneducated. Luke, the fourth gospel writer, was incredibly educated for his day. He was a doctor that traveled with Paul and an incredibly thorough and gifted historian. And he set out to make the definitive account to get all the facts and figures and dates and all those details in there. Each one of these had a specific audience in mind, but each one of them were there. And two of them were apostles. The other two had direct access 
to apostles. Most of the rest of the letters in the Bible, most of the rest of the New Testament was written by Paul, who was an apostle. After Acts, which is what we're looking at a whole lot, which, that was also written by Luke, by the way. But then, then Romans, 1 Corinthians, and on and on. Most of that is written by Paul, one of the apostles. John the apostle wrote not only his gospel, but three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. The apostle Peter wrote 1st and 2nd Peter. And then the only two books left in the New Testament is James and Jude. James and Jude were Jesus' half-brothers. They actually show up in the gospel accounts, usually as antagonists, usually as people who hadn't believed in him yet. And yet both of them start their books by identifying themselves, I, Jude, or I, James. And then they say, a servant or a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? First-hand eyewitness account. This guy that was there, sure we share the same mom, not really sure by the whole thing that the other guy's dad was God. Really wish he'd settled down, stopped causing so much trouble and bringing so much stuff on our family. Came full circle. And they were just as obsessed as everybody else. Now it's great that the New Testament is so trustworthy. It's great that we have these first-hand accounts. That what we have in our hands when we pick up a New Testament is actually the apostles teaching written down so it can't get changed by word of mouth shared translated with great care for 2,000 years what does that mean to us today what does it look like if we become devoted to the apostles teaching the way the early church was devoted to the apostles teaching that's the question we've got to ask ourselves that's the thing because that's what we're called to do we're called to become disciples and also apostles in the sense that we follow and we're sent out to share this. Dr. Tony Evans says that the church was never meant to become, this is his exact words, this phrase, become an informational, inspirational weekly gathering. An informational, inspirational weekly gathering. For a lot of people around the world, this is all church is. It's, it's a, a weekly, informational, inspirational gathering. He says the church is the group of people that God has ordained to bring heaven's viewpoint into history. I love this, and I want to read it one more time. Listen to that and think about what that means. The church is the group of people that God has ordained to bring heaven's viewpoint into history. Just a few moments ago, we sang this song, Wonder. talks about, I see the world your way. I'm walking in the light. This is it. This is what we're called to do. To walk in the light, to draw people into the light, and to actually do this. But what is this heaven's viewpoint? What is it that we must bring into history? What is the devotion? What does it look like? We look at their example, and here's at least a few of the things that I know it has to include. Number one, they shared the story of Jesus. They shared the story of Jesus. They lived it. They continued to live it. They continued to stay in touch with him. They expected him to keep his promise that he would be with them always. And they experienced that. And day after day, they built their life on his teachings. And day after day, they shared his teachings 
with everyone else. Whatever that looks like in modern America, whatever that looks like in Roan County, whatever that looks in your home and in your own heart, that's one of the things. You've got to share that story. You've got to live that story. Jesus demanded action. Here's a line I'd like you to know. Devotion produces action. Action produces stories. Here's, here's all that means. If you're really devoted to something, you act on it. Okay? How many watched the Vols game yesterday? Just a show of hands. Okay? You're not that devoted to the Vols. Do you understand? I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. But people who are devoted to the balls, you, you go on a game day, you go, hey, you want to go water skiing? Nope, it's game day. They're devoted to it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like this, this is how it goes. And so devotion produces action. You act on it. If you're really devoted, somehow that's not something you just do in your head. That's something you do in your life. And action, when you act, when you do things, you've got stories. If you sit around and watch a ball game with a bunch of friends, you, you remember that. It's good times, especially if they want. Maybe that's why you're not that devoted. Sorry, I just can't. Sorry. But when we do stuff, we've got stories to tell, and stories are fun, and stories pull people in. Stories are personal eyewitness accounts, and that's what people put stock in. They don't really care that much about some big lofty idea. They want to know, does it work? They want to know, does it real? They don't care about some guy that wrote a book a long time ago unless somebody named Fred or Nancy just wrote it, just said, this is awesome, you've got to read it. They've never met these people, but they're going to try. They don't care about movies that have fairy tales and jokes unless somebody says, no, seriously, trust me. And then they get to see something like The Princess Bride. This is how we work. This is what it looks like to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Your devotion produces action. Your action produces stories. And you can't help but tell those stories. And the people that you love can't help but be drawn into them. And the one that you're telling the stories about. For our invitation this morning, I simply ask that you make whatever choice God's telling you to do. The invitation this morning is simply, whatever, as I'm talking, if God said to you, here's what devotion would produce in you. This is the action that would produce in you. That's what you need to do. Maybe, maybe the Great Commission needs to be your mission more than ever before. Maybe, that's, maybe God is calling you to, to just share your story. Or maybe just... Start living some stories so you have a story to tell, but that idea captured you. I hope it captured every one of you. But maybe someone in this room specifically, you just know that's you. So you say, okay, God, I'll do that. Maybe, maybe you're just really starting to get it that sharing his story, inviting people into the kingdom of God, is, it just is what it means. It's part of what it means. You can't separate that from following Jesus. You can't, at least in the sense that I said this morning, you can't be a disciple without also being an apostle. There's other meanings to that word, but do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? Those two ideas go together. Maybe you need to join our group as we try to obey all of this. Maybe you need to give your life to Jesus for the first time, to repent of your sins, be baptized, to give your whole life to him. I invite you to do whatever it means to you this morning to fully devote yourself to the apostles' teaching. Do that as we stand and sing.